Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com, and if you enjoy our show, please share us with a friend. This episode is brought to you by Severely Good Taste. Tonight, we'll read the next part to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a classic science fiction adventure novel by French writer Jules Verne. In the last episode, Captain Nemo gives Dr. Aranax a tour of the Nautilus after a seafood lunch. First, they visit the ship's library, an incredible vault of books comparable in size to anything similar on land. The captain offers Dr. Aranax a cigar made of materials from the sea, which he thoroughly enjoys. They move on to the salon. It contains a remarkable collection of reproductions of classic artwork and sculptures and sheet music of the world's best composers. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Captain Nemo was silent and seemed lost in a profound reverie. I contemplated him with deep interest, analyzing in silence the strange expression of his countenance. Leaning on his elbow against an angle of a costly mosaic table, 
He no longer saw me. He had forgotten my presence. I did not disturb this reverie and continued my observation of the curiosities which enriched this drawing room. Under elegant glass cases fixed by copper rivets were classed and labeled the most precious productions of the sea which had ever been presented to the eye of a naturalist. My delight as a professor may be conceived. The division containing the zoophytes presented the most curious specimens of the two group. In the first group, the tubipora, were gorgonets arranged like a fan, soft sponges of Syria, an admirable virgularia of the Norwegian seas, a whole series of madripoors, which my master, Milne Edwards, had so cleverly classified amongst which I remarked some wonderful flabellinae oculinae of the island of Bourbon, the Neptune's car of the Antilles, superb varieties of corals, in short, every species of those curious polypi of which entire islands are formed, which will one day become continents. Of the echinoderms, remarkable for their coating of spines, sea stars, Amatules, asterophons, etc., represented individually a complete collection of this group. A somewhat nervous conchologist would certainly have fainted before other more numerous cases in which were classified the specimens of mollusks. It was a collection of inestimable value which time fails me to describe minutely. Amongst these specimens, I will quote from memory only the elegant royal hammerfish of the Indian Ocean, whose regular white spots stood out brightly on a red and brown ground, an imperial spondyle, bright-colored, bristling with spines, a rare specimen in the European museums, a common hammerfish of the seas of New Holland, which is only procured with difficulty. Exotic Bocardia of Senegal, fragile white bivalve shells, which a breath might shatter like a soap bubble. Several varieties of the Aspergillum of Java, a kind of calcareous tube edged with leafy folds and much debated by amateurs. Stellari found in the southern seas, and last, the rarest of all, the magnificent spur of New Zealand, and every description of delicate and fragile shells to which science has given appropriate names. Apart, in separate compartments, were spread out chaplets of pearls of the greatest beauty, which reflected the electric light in little sparks of fire. Pink pearls, torn from the pinna marina of the Red Sea, 
green pearls of the haliotide iris, yellow, blue, and black pearls, the curious productions of the divers' mollusks of every ocean, and certain mussels of the watercourses of the north. Lastly, several specimens of inestimable value which had been gathered from the rarest pintadines. Some of these pearls were larger than a pigeon's egg and were worth as much and more than what sold to the Shah of Persia for three millions and surpassed the one in the possession of the Imam of Muscat, which I had believed to be unrivaled in the world. Therefore, to estimate the value of this collection was simply impossible. Captain Nemo must have expended millions in the acquirement of these various specimens, and I was thinking what source he could have drawn from to have been able thus to gratify his fancy for collecting when I was interrupted by these words. You are examining my shells, Professor? Unquestionably, they must be interesting to a naturalist, but for me, they have a far greater charm, for I have collected them all with my own hand, and there is not a sea on the face of the globe which has escaped my researches. I can understand, Captain, the delight of wandering about in the midst of such riches. You are one of those who have collected their treasures themselves. No museum in Europe possesses such a collection of the produce of the ocean. But if I exhaust all my admiration upon it, I shall have none left for the vessel which carries it. I do not wish to pry into your secrets, but I must confess that this Nautilus, with the motive power which is confined in it, the contrivances which enable it to be worked, the powerful agent which propels it all excite my curiosity to the highest pitch. I see suspended on the walls of this room instruments of whose use I am ignorant. You will find these same instruments in my own room, Professor, where I shall have much pleasure in explaining their use to you. But first, come and inspect the cabin which is set apart for your own use. You must see how you will be accommodated on board the Nautilus. I followed Captain Nemo who, by one of the doors opening from each panel of the drawing room, regained the waist. He conducted me towards the bow, and there I found, not a cabin, but an elegant room with a bed, dressing table, and several other pieces of excellent furniture. I could only thank my host. Your room adjoins mine, said he, opening a door, and mine opens into the drawing room that we have just quitted. I entered the captain's room. It had a severe, almost a monkish aspect, a small iron bedstead, a table, some articles for the toilet, the whole lighted by a skylight, no comforts, the strictest necessaries only.
Captain Nemo pointed to a seat. Be so good as to sit down, he said. I seated myself, and he began thus. Chapter 11 All by Electricity Sir, said Captain Nemo, showing me the instruments hanging on the walls of his room. Here are the contrivances required for the navigation of the Nautilus. Here, as in the drawing room, I have them always under my eyes, and they indicate my position and exact direction in the middle of the ocean. Some are known to you, such as the thermometer, which gives the internal temperature of the Nautilus, the barometer, which indicates the weight of the air and foretells the changes of the weather, the hygrometer, which marks the dryness of the atmosphere, the storm glass, the contents of which, by decomposing, announce the approach of tempests, the compass, which guides my course, the sextant, which shows the latitude by the altitude of the sun, chronometers, by which I calculate the longitude, and glasses for day and night, which I use to examine the points of the horizon when the Nautilus rises to the surface of the waves. These are the usual nautical instruments, I replied, and I know the use of them, but these others no doubt answer to the particular requirements of the Nautilus. The dial with the movable needle is a manometer, is it not? It is actually a manometer, but by communication with the water, whose external pressure it indicates, it gives our depth at the same time. And these other instruments, the use of which I cannot guess. Here, Professor, I ought to give you some explanations. Will you be kind enough to listen to me? He was silent for a few moments, then he said, There is a powerful agent, obedient, rapid, easy, which conforms to every use and reigns supreme on board my vessel. Everything is done by means of it. It lights it, warms it, and is the soul of my mechanical apparatus. This agent is electricity. Electricity? I cried in surprise. Yes, sir. Nevertheless, Captain, you possess an extreme rapidity of movement, which does not agree with the power of electricity. Until now, its dynamic force has remained under restraint and has only been able to produce a small amount of power. Professor, said Captain Nemo, my electricity is not everybody's. You know what seawater is composed of. In a thousand grams are found 96.5% of water and about two two-thirds percent of chloride of sodium. Then, in a smaller quantity, chlorides of magnesium and of potassium bromide of magnesium, sulfate 
of magnesia, sulfate, and carbonate of lime. You see, then, that chloride of sodium forms a large part of it. So it is this sodium that I extract from seawater, and of which I compose my ingredients. I owe all to the ocean. It produces electricity, and electricity gives heat, light, motion, and in a word, life to the Nautilus. But not the air you breathe. Oh, I could manufacture the air necessary for my consumption, but it is useless, because I go up to the surface of the water when I please. However, if electricity does not furnish me with air to breathe, it works at least the powerful pumps that are stored in spacious reservoirs, and which enable me to prolong at need, and as long as I will, my stay in the depths of the sea. It gives a uniform and unintermittent light, which the sun does not. Now look at this clock. It is electrical and goes with a regularity that defies the best chronometers. I have divided it into 24 hours, like the Italian clocks, because for me there is neither night nor day, sun nor moon, but only the light that I take with me to the bottom of the sea. Look, just now, it is 10 o'clock in the morning. Exactly. Another application of electricity. This dial hanging in front of us indicates the speed of the Nautilus. An electric thread puts it in communication with the screw, and the needle indicates the real speed. Look. Now we are spinning along with a uniform speed of 15 miles an hour. It is marvelous, and I see, Captain, you were right to make use of this agent that takes the place of wind, water, and steam. We have not finished, Monsieur Aranax, said Captain Nemo, rising. If you will follow me, we will examine the stern of the Nautilus. Really, I knew already the anterior part of this submarine boat of which this is the exact division, starting from the ship's head, the dining room, five yards long, separated from the library by a watertight partition, the library, five yards long, the large drawing room, ten yards long, separated from the captain's room by a second watertight partition, the said room, five yards in length, Mine, two and a half yards, and lastly, a reservoir of air, seven and a half yards that extends to the bows. Total length, 35 yards, or 105 feet. The partitions had doors that were shut hermetically by means of India rubber instruments, and they ensured the safety of the Nautilus in case of a leak. I followed Captain Nemo through the waist and arrived at the center of the boat. There was a sort of well that opened between the two partitions, an iron ladder fastened with an iron hook to the partition led to the upper end. I asked the captain what the ladder was used for. It leads to the small boat, 
he said. What? You have a boat? I exclaimed in surprise. Of course. An excellent vessel. Light and insubmersible, that serves either as a fishing or as a pleasure boat. But then, when you wish to embark, you are obliged to come to the surface of the water. Not at all. This boat is attached to the upper part of the hull of the Nautilus and occupies a cavity made for it. It is decked, quite watertight, and held together by solid bolts. This ladder leads to a manhole made in the hull of the Nautilus that corresponds with a similar hole made in the side of the boat. By this double opening, I get into the small vessel. They shut the one belonging to the Nautilus. I shut the other by means of screw pressure. I undo the bolts, and the little boat goes up to the surface of the sea with rapidity. I then open the panel of the bridge, carefully shut till then. I mast it, hoist my sail, take my oars, and I'm off. But how do you get back on board? I do not come back, Monsieur Aranax. The Nautilus comes to me. By your orders? By my orders. An electric thread connects us. I telegraph to it, and that is enough. Really? I said, astonished at these marvels. Nothing can be more simple. After having passed by the cage of the staircase that led to the platform, I saw a cabin six feet long in which Conseil and Ned Land, enchanted with their repast, were devouring it with avidity. Then a door opened into a kitchen nine feet long, situated between the large storerooms. There, electricity, better than gas itself, did all the cooking. The streams under the furnaces gave out to the sponges of platina a heat which was regularly kept up and distributed. They also heated a distilling apparatus which by evaporation furnished excellent drinkable water. Near this kitchen was a bathroom comfortably furnished with hot and cold water taps. Next to the kitchen was the berth room of the vessel, sixteen feet long, but the door was shut, and I could not see the management of it, which might have given me an idea of the number of men employed on board the Nautilus. At the bottom was a fourth partition that separated this office from the engine room. A door opened, and I found myself in the compartment where Captain Nemo, certainly an engineer of a very high order, had arranged his locomotive machinery. This engine room, clearly lighted, did not measure less than 65 feet in length. It was divided into two parts. The first contained the materials for producing electricity, and the second, the machinery that connected it with the screw. I examined it with great interest in order to understand the machinery of the Nautilus. You see said the captain. I use Bunsen's contrivances. Not Rumkorf's. Those would not have been powerful enough. Bunsen's are fewer in number, but strong and large, which experience proves to be the best. 
the electricity produced passes forward, where it works by electromagnets of great size on a system of levers and cogwheels that transmit the movement to the axle of the screw. This one, the diameter of which is 19 feet, and the thread 23 feet, performs about 120 revolutions in a second. And you get then a speed of 50 miles an hour. I have seen the Nautilus maneuver before the Abraham Lincoln, and I have my own ideas as to its speed, but this is not enough. We must see where we go. We must be able to direct it to the right, to the left, above, below. How do you get to the great depths where you find an increasing resistance, which is rated by hundreds of atmospheres? How do you return to the surface of the ocean? And how do you maintain yourselves in the requisite medium? Am I asking too much? Not at all, Professor, replied the captain with some hesitation. Since you may never leave this submarine boat, come into the saloon. It is our usual study, and there you will learn all you want to know about the Nautilus. Chapter 12 Some Figures A moment after we were seated on a couch in the saloon, smoking, the captain showed me a sketch that gave the plan, section, and elevation of the Nautilus. Then he began his description in these words. Here, Monsieur Aranax, are the several dimensions of the boat you are in. It is an elongated cylinder with conical ends. It is very like a cigar in shape, a shape already adopted in London in several constructions of the same sort. The length of this cylinder, from stem to stern, is exactly 232 feet, and its maximum breadth is 26 feet. It is not built quite like your long voyage steamers, but its lines are sufficiently long and its curves prolonged enough to allow the water to slide off easily and oppose no obstacle to its passage. These two dimensions enable you to obtain by a simple calculation the surface and cubic contents of the Nautilus. Its area measures 6,032 feet and its contents about 1,500 cubic yards. That is to say, when completely immersed, it displaces 50,000 feet of water, or weighs 1,500 tons. When I made the plans for this submarine vessel, I meant that nine-tenths should be submerged. Consequently, it ought only to displace nine-tenths of its bulk. That is to say, only to weigh that number of tons. I ought not, therefore, to have exceeded that weight, constructing it on the aforesaid dimensions. The Nautilus is composed of two hulls, one inside, the other outside, joined by T-shaped irons, which render it very strong. Indeed, owing to the cellular arrangement, it resists like a block, as if it were solid. Its sides cannot yield. It coheres spontaneously 
and not by the closeness of its rivets. Due to the perfect union of the materials, it enables it to defy the roughest seas. These two hulls are composed of steel plates whose density is from 0.7 to 0.8 that of water. The first is not less than two inches and a half thick and weighs 394 tons. The second envelope, the keel, 20 inches high and 10 thick, weighs alone 62 tons. The engine, the ballast, the several accessories and apparatus appendages, the partitions and bulkheads, weigh 961.62 tons. Do you follow all this? I do. Then, when the Nautilus is afloat under these circumstances, one-tenth is out of the water. Now, if I have made reservoirs of a size equal to this tenth, or capable of holding 150 tons, and if I fill them with water, the boat, weighing then 1,507 tons, will be completely immersed. That would happen, Professor. These reservoirs are in the lower parts of the Nautilus. I turn on taps and they fill, and the vessel sinks that had just been level with the surface. Well, Captain, but now we come to the real difficulty. I can understand your rising to the surface, but diving below the surface? Does not your submarine contrivance encounter a pressure and consequently undergo an upward thrust of one atmosphere for every 30 feet of water just above 15 pounds per square inch? Just so, sir. Then, unless you quite fill the Nautilus, I do not see how you can draw it down to those depths. Professor, you must not confound statics with dynamics, or you will be exposed to grave errors. There is very little labor spent in attaining the lower regions of the ocean, for all bodies have a tendency to sink. When I wanted to find out the necessary increase of weight required to sink the Nautilus, I had only to calculate the reduction of volume that seawater acquires according to the depth. That is evident. Now, if water is not absolutely incompressible, it is at least capable of very slight compression. Indeed. After the most recent calculations, this reduction is only 0.00436 of an atmosphere 
for each 30 feet of depth. If we want to sink 3,000 feet, I should keep account of the reduction of bulk under a pressure equal to that of a column of water of a thousand feet. The calculation is easily verified. Now I have supplementary reservoirs capable of holding a hundred tons. Therefore, I can sink to a considerable depth. When I wish to rise to the level of the sea, I only let off the water and empty all the reservoirs if I want the Nautilus to emerge from the tenth part of her total capacity. I had nothing to object to these reasonings.